Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained, the geopolitical podcast that dives deep into the world's most pressing issues. I'm Tiana, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Kervin. (laughs) (laughs) We here at Oakland Analytics aim to bring you all the weekly insights and analysis on events and trends that are shaping our global landscape. We're covering topics ranging from conflict to economics and trade. With a focus on delivering objective and informed perspectives, we aim to offer a comprehensive understanding of the complexities of our dynamic and ever-changing world. Without further ado, Kervin, let's get right into what's on your radar this week. All right. Yeah, Russia, Ukraine, a couple of things going on there, but there's a lot of discuss. There's a lot of NATO talk this week. So um, we talk about Ukraine's NATO bid. And the problem with that, as they're going through this conflict, but Sweden's also getting closer to, uh, to to gaining access to being a part of NATO. So that was huge news. Kind of interesting thing going on in India is they have now pushed back against that BRICS currency we've been talking about. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they're about to become a, a big geopolitical player. I've been talking about it uh, this week out at, uh, out at Nellis. We've been okay. kind of talking about that. Um, then... We have the uh, Iran-Russia relationship, and that is being tested this week, so we'll talk about that. And then we'll end it on North Korea. North Korea spoke out against the U.S. and then fired off some ballistic missiles, so another <laughs> typical week for North Korea, I guess. As one do- as one does to prove a point, you fire off ballistic yeah. missiles after That's every what I do. statement <laughs> every, <laughs> every statement against a country, you fire off. Yeah. Anyways, let's get started. Let's get started. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So what is the latest in Ukraine? So no major breakthroughs on on either side on the ground there. Um, But Russia continues to launch missiles and drones against Kiev, against the city of Kiev. Um, During the latest attack this week, Ukrainian officials reported that air defenses actually successfully intercepted all 20 drones that Russia used against Kiev plus the surrounding area, as well. It sent uh, two caliber missiles uh, in other parts of the country of Ukraine, and those were intercepted as well. But the airstrikes from Russia have intensified, and that's because NATO leaders are getting together for a summit in Lithuania with a lot of discussion about Ukraine. Now, at the summit, Ukrainian President Zelensky expressed his desire once again to have Ukraine included as a NATO country. Okay, well, before we get into Ukraine's NATO chances, can we discuss the Ukrainian counteroffensive for a little bit? Because we haven't really talked about it. How has that been going? It seems like there is less than no news on the current situation in places like Bakhmut. Occasionally, they'll throw us a little bone here and let us know, like, right. the very bare minimum of what's going on there. So has there been any significant gains? Have there been? Has there been? <laughs> <laughs> I clearly, well, I was about to say this is a caffeine issue, but I don't drink caffeine. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just a sleep issue. It's a sleep issue for me. It's early in the morning. <laughs> well, uh, sorry about that. It's well, fine. to answer that, um, the, the spokesperson for the Eastern Military Command in Ukraine said that Ukraine has achieved, quote, partial success in the southern flanks of Bakhmut. Um, I've, I've looked at the current map from the Institute to the study of war. And there are little pockets that Ukraine has has achieved success in, in Bakhmut. Now, Ukrainian forces do maintain a strategic advantage in that area. Uh, 
The Eastern Military Command also noted that Russian forces have encountered substantial resistance, and they did fail in their attempts to break through Ukrainian lines near uh, places like Levan and Kupiansk, which is in the eastern portion of Ukraine. Uh, it's very important for Ukraine because a successful breakthrough would actually bolster Russia's chances of advancing further westward towards Kiev. Now, Russia obviously denies these statements, uh, but like I said, looking at the updated imagery in the region, it does appear Ukraine is holding steady on the front lines and, and in some areas have even retaken land that Russia captured very early in the invasion. Well, thank you for that update. Now let's get into the NATO talk because there's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. So let's get started. Um, what is the latest on Ukraine's chances at an invite into the alliance? Yeah, so this it's an important conversation because uh, this is so nuanced. And unless you follow this stuff like we do, um, you probably don't have an understanding of, of how this works. It's perfectly fine. Um, uh, you know, like I said, it's fine because it's contrary to the Twitter conversations. We don't need to know everything about everything. That, that's right. not why we're here. Um, that's why we have subject matter experts to explain these events, people who are, are reading about this every day and studying it. But this week, um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that, that's U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, um, there's no doubt that Ukraine's going to become part of NATO. That's after Russia's war against the country ends. The after Russia's war in Ukraine distinction is important because Ukraine cannot, I'll say again, they cannot become a member of NATO while it is in a direct armed conflict with Russia. And why is that? Well, first, if they did, it, it would immediately trigger Article 5. And that puts NATO in a war with Russia. And then at that point, Iran and China would get involved. And then we have the beginning of a world war. And that's all predicated on Ukraine joining NATO. So that's not going to happen. Also, uh, NATO has no assurance that Ukraine is going to be a country after the conflict with Russia. The hope is that we can come to a peace agreement and, and everything goes back to normal. But we don't know that. We all know that Putin intends to incorporate Ukraine as Russian ter territory if they win, if Russia wins. And that's going to open a whole can of worms if Ukraine's already a NATO member. Were there any specific conditions mentioned for Ukraine's potential NATO membership? Yeah, so Secretary Austin highlighted that um, while there is a, a, a belief in Ukraine's eventual NATO membership, there are still certain conditions that need to be met. Um, he mentioned the importance of judicial reform and ensuring that democracy in Ukraine is in good shape. That's going to be key to getting them into NATO. These conditions, um, along with the ongoing training and equipping efforts, would need to be addressed to ensure Ukraine has a full complement of capabilities. Okay, well, a little off topic here, but recently the U.S. agreed to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. Can you kind of explain the controversy and maybe give your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, that, that really um, wasn't a question, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously the, the shipment represents a complex concern. It's got various advantages and disadvantages. Um, so from a strategic perspective, these cluster bombs can effectively destroy dispersed targets, such as Russian troops and vehicles. But it's critical to acknowledge the high failure rate associated with these weapons. That's it's a, a, a significant proportion of these munitions fail to detonate whenever they're launched. This raises concerns regarding the enduring risk posed to civilians, and I would say particularly children. 
these right. unexploded munitions uh, by they could be mistaken for toys by children or some other innocuous object by anybody. And then you go to pick it up and it's unintentionally triggered and we have, you know, a tragedy. A civilian death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what, you know, that's what Laos is, is dealing with right now. That's what places in Croatia are dealing with right now right. because these kind of munitions were used. It's very dangerous, um, but it, it's a complicated situation. Uh, so my thoughts, just my opinion, um, they should not be used. That's my opinion. Right. Over 100 countries signed an agreement to not use these bombs. I'll say that is Ukraine... The US not, is the U.S. not included in that? We didn't sign anything? The U.S. is not included. U.S., Ukraine, and Russia. Fighting dirty. Fighting dirty. Oh, Fighting man. Fighting dirty, man. <laughs> um, I, morally, it's a tough decision. Right. So I, will, I also want to say that it's important to note that Ukraine is not the aggressor in this conflict. Yeah, of course. It's it's Russia. Russia initiated the invasion. So Ukraine possesses a legitimate right to defend itself. Yeah, I just, obviously. Yeah, so I, I just say that the, util, the utilization of these bombs must be, if it's going to be used, it has to be executed in a manner that minimizes the risks to civilian populations. Well, I guess we'll see how these bombs are used and, of course, continue to update everyone on their effectiveness for Ukraine or lack thereof. So let's get into the latest ep- update on Sweden's bid to join NATO. Seems like every three months something new pops up. So what is the latest? Yeah, Turkish President Erdogan stated that Sweden's NATO membership bid will not be ratified by Turkey's parliament before October of this year. Okay. So he's putting it up there, but it has to be by, it, it can't be before October. He did express hope for a swift ratification uh, once lawmakers return from their current break. So what led to Erdogan's change of heart regarding Sweden's NATO membership? Yeah, the, the decision to withdraw Turkey's op- objections to Sweden uh, joining NATO came after they had several meetings. And that was with, that was between meetings between Sweden, Turkey, and the uh NATO leadership. And um, and then so Sweden pledged to deepen cooperation with Turkey on counterterrorism. That was a big one for Turkey. Also, right. NATO Secretary General announced the establishment of a special coordinator for counterterrorism. It's a huge win for Turkey. Um, and so these, these commitments were part of a draft kind of roadmap that was presented by the Swedish prime minister, and it outlined 17 articles of cooperation between just Turkey and Sweden. Well, do you know that? Um, do you know of any of the specific conditions or commitments made by Sweden in order to secure Erdogan's support? Yeah. So, and this is according to Erdogan, um, Sweden committed to a bilateral security mechanism and increased cooperation in the fight against terrorist organizations. Sweden also pledged active support for Turkey in updating the customs union, you know, achieving like visa liberal liberalization so that Turkey can, Turkish citizens can go to Sweden um, without any problems. And also advancing, the big one is advancing Turkey's membership process with the European Union. Um, that's going to be huge for, for Turkey. Erdogan also mentioned that Sweden's assistance in lifting arms embargoes imposed on Turkey is a huge part of the deal as well. So what are the next steps in Sweden's NATO membership process? So the, the deal between Turkey and Sweden would first be discussed by the 
the Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee before going to a vote in the main chamber. Erdogan's going to need to win over political parties aligned with his uh, Justice and Development Party because they're kind of against this. Uh, and he needs those votes to secure parliamentary approval. This will also include a small Islamist group in Turkey that expresses uh, major opposition to Sweden joining NATO due to concerns about attacks on Islamic values. Well, <clears throat> good luck to Sweden. <laughs> and yes. hopefully there is a resolution to all of this by October. Let's get into the BRICS situation. Can you just kind of give a background on BRICS and their planned global currency before we get into the situation with India? A little refresher, Yeah, course. sure. So the, a little refresher. It's been a while since we talked about this. Um, yeah, so the, the BRICS alliance, as we know that we've been talking about, they've been planning to float a new currency, and that's to challenge the, the global reserve status of the U.S. dollar. While the other four BRICS countries seem to support this, um, this common currency, India has expressed disinterest in the plans for a new currency. So what are the reasons behind India's stance against a BRICS currency? Yeah, they have, India's got several uh, reasons for this decision. First, India's strong GDP performance recently allows the country to thrive independently without the need for the new BRICS currency. Real quick, I, I, was, I read an article a couple of days ago that... Um, India over the last 10 years has gone from uh, a, a almost 60% um, poverty rate down mm-hmm. to 15% over the last 10 years. Wow. So their economy is, is doing rather well. That's amazing. Um, it definitely is. I've got to do more research on, on seeing how they did that, but um, yeah. it's incredible. That's, that is incredible. I wish some other countries would <laughs> such a thing sienna from the top rope getting other countries to do it yeah i mean if it works yeah definitely and and if it's not people out of the poverty cycle why the heck not and and if it's not done in a shady way where yeah of course where people gain well you know the people supposedly helping gaining more than actually helping yeah definitely so India believes that its economic strength is sufficient. It doesn't need a BRICS currency. Also, uh, India is kind of on the fence. You know, they're playing they're playing both sides here. They value their relationship with Western powers, and that includes the United States and Europe. Um, and this is all with with trade and military cooperation. They don't want to risk these ties by embracing a yet to be released BRICS currency. Right. Um, there's also a concern, a very valid concern, especially if you listen to uh, to this podcast, you know we believe this, that a BRICS currency could be just China-centric. And right. that was they're the biggest country, yes, or the, the one with the most influence financially. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and the, we all know that, that China just wants to continue furthering their dominance, which would undermine India's interests. Yeah. So India is very cautious of, of China's power and ambition within the BRICS alliance. They want to um, protect its own economic and security interests in their country. Well, aside from China's goals, what are the main goals and ambitions of the BRICS alliance? Uh, really, it's it's similar to China's individual goals. So it aims to challenge the global dominance of the U.S. and establish itself as a significant force in world trade by 2050. The establishment of the New Development Bank 
2014 uh, with $50 billion in seed money was a significant step toward this goal. The New Development Bank provides competition to institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and it reflects the alliance's growing economic influence. Now, beyond economic matters, BRICS also seeks to represent the voice of the global South. So they're saying that we're too focused on Western values and we need to start, we need a, a voice that represents their countries. They want to assert itself as a counterbalance to those Western powers. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but are India's concerns warranted? Is China using the BRICS alliance as a tool to achieve its own goals? Of course, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's not just me that says that or you asking the question. Um, there are reports suggesting that, that China sees BRICS as a means to challenge the global reserve status of the U.S. dollar and is using the alliance as a weapon in its quest for its own global dominance. China is pressuring countries to settle trade using its Chinese yuan, uh, aiming to position itself as the dominant player on the globe. Um, other BRICS members, not just India, but Brazil and South Africa, have expressed skepticism about China's intentions, and they're Already? concerned about. Oh yeah, like haven't even like fully formed this alliance thing yet, and they're all everybody's already voicing concerns about China. Yeah. Should have thought well, about you, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, right? We talked about that. Yes. How China basically abused other countries. Um, and they still haven't paid what they said they would to those countries. Right. So <laughs> they should have used that as a reason not to, a red flag to not join BRICS. Yeah. What, what are my red flags? That's a big one. What are one. my red flags? Well, take advantage uh, of underdeveloped nations <laughs> and well, saddle yeah. them with a lot of debt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I mean... It's it's right. It's happening right in front of our eyes, um, and we can all see it happening. And then, and so that that's why the skepticism is warranted. Um, yeah, they they understand. So they're all skeptical about China's intentions. They're concerned about potential dominance and the imposition, the imposition of President Xi's vision of the global order. Uh, they know that he's he wants to control, be at the top, and control everything. Right. India. Um, is cautious because of historical tensions and disputes with China. Since they want to kind of take over by 2050, I would like to know what universe in which President Xi is alive in 2050 <laughs> to take over the whole world. <laughs> just well, just the, the one where he's cryogenically frozen and brought uh, back in 2050. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, All right, well, one. let's 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 move, move to the converse. Let's move the... Ah, man! I am jumbled today. Let's move the conversation from one shaky alliance to another. Um, what is going on with the relationship between Iran and Russia? So the, the Russo-Iranian alliance is experiencing strain and tensions, and it's apparent after Iran gave a negative response to a Russia-GCC joint statement. What was the Russia-GCC joint statement? So the statement expressed support for the Emirati claim to three Iranian-controlled islands in the Persian Gulf, which Iran strongly opposes. So just, just real quick, um, there's back and forth on a few islands within the Persian Gulf, and Iran stakes claim for them, 
on them right now. They're controlled by Iran, but the Emirati say that those are their islands and they want them back. Okay. Um, so like I said, the Russia GCC joint statement said that they support the Emirati claim. So Iran summoned the Russian ambassador to express its objection to the statement, similar to its <laughs> previous response to Chinese support that there should be a negotiated settlement of the disputed islands. Like a negotiated settlement of Taiwan? Tiana from the top rope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not bring facts and logic into this discussion, okay, Tiana? No, let's, let's not do that. That's not what this is about. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you're exactly right. A negotiated settlement of Taiwan allowing for its citizens there to vote on whether it should be controlled by China or not is much better than an all-out war, but China's not going to go for that. So then why are China and Russia supporting the Emirati claim to the disputed islands? And how does it relate to their strategy in balancing their relationships with Iran and the Gulf Arab states? China and Russia's support for the Emirati claim to the islands is actually part of their strategy to balance their relationships with Iran and the Gulf Arab states. Both countries are, are part of what's called uh, the Sino-Russian-led Shanghai Corporation Organization, the SCO, which has admitted four of the six Gulf Corporation, uh, Gulf Co Cooperation Council. That's the GCC. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's early for me, too. It's, and by the way, it's, the, yeah, it's earlier for you. <laughs> by the way, it's the Sino-Russian-led Shanghai Cooperation Organization, because you said corporation. Oh, man. All right. It's okay. It's all right. We're doing this. We're getting through it. We're getting through it. It's early. <laughs> Still drinking some coffee. I am doing caffeine. I'm not. Well, I already stated this. So. <laughs> but um, so by, by expressing support for the Emirati claim, China and Russia are, are demonstrating their willingness to maintain relationships with the Gulf Arab states while possibly going at odds with Iran. That's huge. This approach, however, allows them to navigate the complex dynamics of the region without actually taking sides. That is going to potentially risk their relationship with any and all parties involved. It could blow up right in their face. And then as this situation continues to develop and potentially lead to fractures in the alliance between Iran, Russia, and China, let's move on over to North Korea as they made some provocative statements toward the U.S. for another week. <laughs> So no. what is the latest there? So North Korea accused the United States of violating North Korean airspace by conducting surveillance flights. They also threatened to shoot down U.S. surveillance planes. That would be a dramatic escalation. But, I mean, if the U.S. is doing it in their airspace, didn't that, is that what they're implying, is that it's being flown in their airspace? Yeah. Yes. I mean, don't um, they have a right to shoot them down if they are encroaching? They they have they have a right to go through a process to request that the the aircraft leave airspace immediately. Uh -huh. Give the aircraft a chance to move out of the airspace. Uh -huh. If the aircraft continues in North Korean airspace after several requests then yes, okay. they would have a legitimate right to shoot down that aircraft, much like the United States would with, let's say, Russia invading U.S. airspace in Alaska. Yeah, okay. Um, 
uh, but but that's that's an escalation because another part of that is to send your own aircraft to escort the plane out without you know engaging violently right. with it okay okay i like how and, my mind went directly to violence but we are talking about north korea so yes and and you have your your brain is going into what is their mindset and how how would they react and that's that's why it, it leaps to that one because that is how they would that would react well but now we know. Uh, yeah and a, another part of this is the united states denied violating north korean airspace so it, it depends on who you trust and who you believe so they they denied it and they have urged north korea to refrain from these escalatory actions team no one just kidding team no one, yeah. <laughs> that's not true that's team Tiana. yeah team me yeah actually no so what are the geopolitical implications of this situation? Well, it's a very serious situation. It, it could have far-reaching consequences. So the United States and its allies are taking these threats seriously. They're working to de-escalate tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Um, if tensions continue to escalate, there is a risk of an accidental military clash between the United States and North Korea. That could be very devastating it could have devastating consequences for the region, and it could also lead to a wider war. So what do you think could be done to de-escalate the tensions? So the, let's start with the United States and its allies. They can start by engaging in dialogue with North Korea. Uh, the United States must also make clear that it's willing to take action against any perceived threats from North Korea. Besides making public statements, what has North Korea's response been to U.S. reconnaissance flights? Well, like we mentioned, after those public statements from North Korea, they fired a suspected intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, uh, to which South Korean and U.S. officials condemned the launch, obviously. Um, they called it a grave, provocative act that needlessly raises tensions in the region. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the, the launch also comes as North Korea is preparing to celebrate the anniversary of the Korean War armistice that's known in the country as Victory Day. So it's believed that North Korea may use the occasion to showcase its latest military hardware. That's to include those ICBMs and its uh, that's and satellites and satellites. Yeah, there are spy satellites that they want to yeah. launch. Right, right, right. Um, what's so that it's it's a good thing when North Korea does this kind of stuff on sort of an analytical side, like an intelligence side. Because it kind of gives us intel guys a better insight into, you know, what North Korea's arsenal looks like. Maybe not so much, you know, how effective it is, but we can kind of see what it looks like. So it doesn't look like we're going to get that much needed de-escalation conversation just yet. No, I mean, it, it really doesn't. And with North Korea, that's, it's tough to have a discussion with the leadership there. Well, thank you, Kervin. Is that all for this week? Yeah, that's it on my side. Do you have anything you wanted to add? Nope. Just wanted <laughs> to say thank you to our listeners for listening to our humble little independent geopolitical podcast. We hope you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, Stay safe out there.